This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Welcome to episode 51 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the most documented podcast in the business. My name is James Myers, and I'm your host. Today, we're going to be talking about Kickstarter from design to fulfillment. With me tonight is a designer familiar with the Kickstarter process and his shadow with a camera. First up, the designer, Chris Falkenberry. How's everybody doing tonight? Pretty good, Chris. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. And the second, the shadow, Eric Rail. How you doing, Eric? Hey, doing good. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. So you guys have been spending a lot of time together in the last couple of years filming a documentary about Chris's Kickstarter. So let's start off with Chris. Um, You've been on the show once before. Go ahead and introduce yourself again and tell us a little bit about what you do within Stone Circle Games. Hey, everybody. Yeah, I'm Chris Falkenberry. And like uh, James says, um, I part owner of a company called Stone Circle Games. We're a small independent uh, game publisher, and uh, we've so far designed all our own games in-house. I am one of the designers, and most recently I designed a game called Battle for Biternia, which is a tabletop MOBA that you're going to hear a little more about because it is covered in Eric's documentary. But mostly my role is design, but I also go to a lot of cons, do a lot of... uh, demos of the game and and also do a lot of playtesting of of other folks games as well okay so you are designer and co-owner uh what other roles are there on the team well we have several other designers in the company uh will jones aaron Fennell, and john moffett all are designers as well we all work to playtest each other's games uh will also does a lot of our video work uh aaron handles our finances john handles some of the uh, businessy aspects and does a lot of the same stuff I do going to cons and, and doing demos. Then we have uh, Gary Mosman and Matt Kisner are our business end guys. They do the project management and the marketing and that kind of thing for us. Let's talk a little bit about the timeline of development for Battle for Baternia. Uh When did you guys start the design and then how did it progress from there? Technically, I started the design before Stone Circle Games ever existed. A couple of friends of mine and I had come up with this idea, which we played a lot of League of Legends at the time, where uh, we'd make a board game of that, and nothing like that existed at the time. So we were kicking around ideas, and we couldn't really come up with anything good, so we let the project drop. A couple of years later, I had an idea. One of those two friends of mine and I designed a game, made a prototype, uh, I liked the rule set a lot, but it took entirely too long to play. So we scrapped that. I came up with a different idea, and that idea was the one that stuck and ended up growing into Battle for Baternia. That happened in around 2012, 2013, I want to say. After that, on and off, I playtested it, and uh, eventually uh, we formed Stone Circle Games, and that was one of the games we considered for to launch for a Kickstarter. We did another game first called Horrible Hex that we kickstarted and produced. And then this was our second offering. In 2016, we tried to do a Kickstarter and we came very close, but didn't quite hit our mark. So we relaunched in November of 2017. And that time we were successful. We hit a couple of stretch goals. Uh, unfortunately, we got a little bit delayed, actually quite a bit delayed in the 
uh, production end of things. Graphic design took longer than we expected, but I'm happy happy to report that recently I was informed the game is now on the boat on the way over. So pretty soon people should actually have it in their hands and we can finally see it on store shelves. Well, that sounds great. So Eric, you have been documenting a lot of this, of this process. When did you first get in touch with Chris? Yeah. Um, well, thanks first of all for having me on the podcast, but um, so I, I guess I started going uh, to the game designers of North Carolina group design group, maybe in mid 2015 or so. And I was there kind of designing my own game um, with you guys and everything. And so after I put that game on the shelf, just because I was hitting so many brick walls, um, I decided that I kind of wanted to just tell the story of like what that was all about. And so I picked up my camera and I started visiting uh, the design group. And, and uh, that's kind of where I started. I really just started filming everybody and the game designers of North Carolina. But then I think eventually um, uh, we boiled it down to a couple of people in the group, Chris being one of them. Okay. So, yeah, I remember the times when you came and you, you recorded a lot of clips and stuff like that. But now it's very different. How has the documentary changed over the course of these last, I guess, two, three years that you've been recording? Yeah, so... We actually started recording in January of 2016, so about yeah, a little over three years now. Initially, I was just you know filming filming the group there in North Carolina for about uh, six or seven months, and then I I moved to Atlanta because I I kind of wanted to explore like more video production stuff. I have a buddy down here. So I, I kind of put the documentary on hold a little bit. But then I came back to it. And when I came back to it, I realized that I wanted to expand the scope a bit. And so at that point, I decided to reach out to other designers out there. And so that's kind of like when the project really grew. And I just started interviewing all the designers I could find who are willing to participate. Okay. And I guess we should mention at this point, the go ahead and tell us a little bit about the, the name of the documentary and, and what's going on right now. Yeah. So uh, the name of the documentary is The Game Designers. So it's pretty straightforward. And it's all about uh, board game designers. So there's five main people on the film. Uh, Chris is one of them. I guess I'll go ahead and name the other four. Uh, we have Antoine Bauza, Matt Leacock, Kelly North Adams, and Doug Shepherds, and Doug Shepherds is why well, you probably know more than I do. But he's he was uh, attending the group there in North Carolina a little bit when I was there. I don't know if he shows up anymore. But um, and then we have like a whole host of other designers in it who are kind of like the talking heads who give like uh, information and critique about the five main designers in the film. I was going to say, hearing that, I'm a uh morbidly curious to find out what some of these designers have said about me. I guess I'll learn when the film comes out. <laughs> yeah, it's all just kind of very general questions when I was doing the interviews. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm working to cobble it into a compelling story. So it's nothing that's like personally related to any one person or anything like that. At what point did you decide that Chris and Battle for Paternia were going to be one of the main characters in the documentary. Yeah. Uh, well, I like the game. 
uh, Battle for Eternia. So that might be like a rather subjective reason, but I was just like, well, this is a cool game, so I want to tell this story. Chris was always always uh, great on camera as well, so I figured that was uh, kind of played into one of the factors, uh, like why I selected Chris, and he was always. Uh, willing to be interviewed and kind of tell like his journey and his past. So that was part of it. Yeah. I think it's a, a fun story as well. Kind of watching him develop his game. Cause um, as they're, you know, fairly early, probably, well, I guess like towards the later part of development, but then I caught him as he was uh, doing his Kickstarter um, and then trying to uh, spread the word about it out at the conventions and stuff like that. So I felt like I caught him at a, a fun point in the journey. Yeah, you definitely did. It was still uh, it was later in the design process, but it was still early enough that there were a fair number of changes to be made. So you got to capture all of that. Well, Chris, why don't you uh, talk about some of those changes that you went through in the late stages of design as you were getting ready to launch on the Kickstarter? In the later stages of design, when I was working with Eric, most of the changes I made to the game itself were either aesthetic we were still finding our art style. I mean, we knew we wanted pixel art, but we were getting in touch with Fabio Fontes, uh, thanks to uh, Brad from Level 99 Games, and getting our getting all that uh, look right. And also, there are a lot of balance changes, because in a game like this, with a bunch of different characters, that's going to be a big uh, issue, something, you know, balance is harder to achieve than maybe in something with a more symmetric style of play. So we went through a lot of those kind of changes. And on top of that, there were changes that we needed to make after the first Kickstarter failed and we needed to do another one. So we got a lot of feedback there of things like people liked the pixel art, but they didn't like our graphic design, which we largely tried to do in-house. And none of us being professional graphic designers, it didn't look as good as it does now after we brought in Laura Levito, who did a fantastic job. Uh, also, uh, Brad from Level 99 hooked us up with her as well, and she's done amazing work for us and made the game look a lot better. We also had to look at, once we had the game right, but we needed to look at how we were offering it up, how we were marketing it. People wanted more characters, so we added a couple of characters who were going to be stretch goals at the base game, that kind of thing. Uh, and all of that you'll probably learn about in... Eric's documentary, or at least he's filmed me talking about it. I don't know how much of it will make gut. Yeah, well, yeah, we kind of uh, cut out like a lot of stuff because you know this documentary we shot like a lot of footage, and there's no way we could get it all in there. But um, so yeah, we had to leave a bunch on the cutting room floor. But hopefully, it's a compelling story as uh, we follow Chris as he um, develops his game. Is there yeah. a backer level that uh, that has a lot has some of these outtakes that people can access? Yeah, um, so we have a collector's edition on the Kickstarter, which is actually live right now. If you all want to go check it out, so the collector's edition will have all that extra content in there, um, nine hours worth of con- extra content. Um, so there's going to be extended interviews and outtakes and extras and stretch goal featurettes all that sort of stuff. And yeah, for you, Chris, there actually will probably be an outtake or two, or even maybe like a deleted scene that's in the bonus content there. So all y'all battle for paternity fans should obviously back the collector's edition. (laughs) So you can see more about it. 
so in episode 44, uh, we talked with Matt Wolf and Daniel Solis about the, what Kickstarter is like from a designer role. But you also went through the Kickstarter, not just as a designer, but also as uh, one of the one of the owners of the company. And then presumably also a lot of the development work and production process. So for designers who are thinking about self-publishing, uh, what kind of things did you learn from this whole process that you think are important to share? I mean, if you're a designer and you want to self-publish your game, that can be a good way to do it. There is definitely a learning curve. There's a whole lot to learn. And and the first piece of advice I would have is don't try to do it all by yourself. Because increasingly, Kickstarter is more and more a full-time job as it takes more and more work to stand out on there. The more it becomes sort of the standard way that uh, a lot of indie designers and indie companies get their games out there. So first of all is get help. Get someone to help you out. I certainly did. Uh, with the other guys in Stone Circle, did a ton of the work. So I can only speak to... My particular role, which was mostly in promoting the game at either somewhat on social media and also mostly at conventions and that kind of thing and developing the game itself. But I can also see that, you know, we uh, we did run into uh, a lot of lessons and we're still learning lessons from it. Like uh, when we hit that delay after the Kickstarter, it took a good deal longer than we expected to get all the graphic design done. So it took us longer to get it to the factory in the first place. And although Longpack has been great to work with, you know, it takes a while to get it printed. And then we underestimated what the cost of EU shipping was going to be. And on top of that, you know, taxes and shipping rates and everything change a lot between when a Kickstarter launches and when you actually ship. And so we have learned a lot about accounting for those kind of things uh, there's there's just there's a ton that you don't realize at first. A lot of little hidden costs and hidden time sinks and things. But it is definitely worth it to do it in the end. Yeah. Okay. So Eric, as somebody who was recording a lot of this process, uh, mm-hmm. what what caught you by surprise that you did not expect to kind of pop up as part of the documentary process? Uh, well, I guess Chris might have touched on it a little bit here. But he actually did two Kickstarters. So the kick, the first Kickstarter he did didn't raise uh, enough to meet the funding goal. And so he had to go back out to the conventions and um, get people excited about it, get people on board, go, go spread the word about it in order to get that second Kickstarter successful. Um, so I guess that was kind of a surprise that um, uh, he went back out and uh, took a second stab at it. I personally haven't, like in my past, like followed Kickstarter too closely. So I don't know if this is a common thing or not, like doing a second Kickstarter. But yeah, it's fun to see him, you know, rebound and uh, be successful the second time. So was it a uh, was it a similar process with the other designers? Or are they in relation in terms of also using Kickstarter or a more traditional publishing route? I know folks like Antoine Bauza and Matt Leacock are, are much bigger names within the industry. Yeah, so Antoine Bowser and Matt Leacock, I think they all, or both of them have uh, publishers that they work with on a semi-frequent basis. I'm not exactly sure how that kind of works on the back end there, um, but both of them are not using Kickstarter, I could put it that way. Now, Kelly North Adams is, in the documentary, she's looking for a publisher. So we follow her at Essen in 2018, and uh, as she 
does a couple of interviews with publishers there at the at the big games festival in Germany. So so she's not doing a Kickstarter either. She's kind of doing, I guess, the more quote unquote traditional way. And then Doug, Doug in the movie actually hasn't gotten to the point where he's doing either or. He's still working on balancing his game and trying to get it working properly. So and that's all captured in the documentary. Okay. So Chris really does have a kind of kind of unique path through the documentary. Yeah. And that's something that kind of played a role in and how we uh, selected the, the five main people in the film was, was the fact that they were all doing separate things, um, you know, either kickstarting a game or publishing a game or starting a new game or, or being, you know, like a veteran in the, in the industry where they're just, they already have those established connections. Okay. Uh, so Chris, why don't you go into some more detail about how this whole, kickstarter process worked for you from the side of a designer well as the designer personally i mean again a lot of it was handled by other folks in the company but the hardest thing about getting this kickstarter thing going was absolutely getting the word out because even if you go to conventions you get a mailing list going people can tell you you know only a shockingly small percent of people on your mailing list will actually take action when you send them emails uh, building a social media reach was really tough. And unfortunately, I can only speak to that so much because some of the other members of the company handle the social media end of things. Uh, but a lot of what we did was like uh, Gary, the guy who does our project management, put together a Kickstarter page. We all sort of collaboratively got together and discussed you know, what our pledge tiers we wanted to be and all that. Uh, John, who I mentioned earlier, worked out the costs and the monetary requirements so we could figure out our price point and we could figure out how we wanted to price each of these pledge levels. So for example, and some of them we just had to, we basically had to guess at. For example, in our first Kickstarter, we had pledge levels where you could name some of the heroes in the game that we hadn't named yet. And we had priced them way too high. And a lot of people said, you know, I'd really be interested in that pledge level, but I don't want to pay that much. So we had to work all that out. Gary, like I said, created the, the Kickstarter page and we all sort of collaboratively got together, gave feedback. We put it up as a preview page where the people on our mailing list and the folks that followed us on social media could look at it and give us feedback. After that point, we launched the, you know, we, we built up the launch. We scheduled some launch parties at our local gaming stores and we launched the campaign and the first one, you know, we did we did pretty well. We got like, I want to say 89 or 90 percent of the way there by the end, but we didn't quite make the cut. And in hindsight, I'm kind of glad we didn't because it gave us a chance to really make the game better and do a better job. And we could just put out a better product because the second time we launched, we didn't squeak by. We finished with a decent uh, margin of success so we could print more copies, which would let us bring the cost down. And let us, uh, you know, put more features and, and more characters and such into the game. Uh, and one of the things we did was drop the price on those pledge levels that, to name a hero. And they all sold out within the first 24 hours because apparently that's a very popular thing that people want to do. So now seven or eight lucky backers uh, have are going to see a, a hero that they named in their copy of the game. I think that's uh, a lot about the process. I've been rambling for a while. Is there anything else you wanted me to expand on with that or? Well, yeah. So I'm curious. We've been talking a lot internally within the group about 
games as a product and how much I, how much of the design process you influences you knowing that it's going to be a product rather than just a creative effort. Can you talk about how your design changed when you realized that design changes would need more components or the, the things that you did to kind of knowingly affect the the price of the game and, and stuff like that, and thinking about it not just as the game but as the, the, the saleable product? That's an excellent point, um, and I think you probably discussed those during the parts of the meeting that I miss when I always show up late because I always show up late. But uh, I think that's less of an issue when you're self-publishing. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's definitely an issue. But one of the one of the big decisions we made was to do cardboard standees instead of miniatures because we just didn't have the liquid capital on hand to pay someone to do all the 3D modeling and the price point of the game would have been way higher and we would have been competing with things like Rum and Bones that is a Simon game so it's got fantastic miniatures and it's all about that and it's also a MOBA board game so we decided to go with a lower price point with a different focus of the game so that you know you would have you could very well own both games and have a different experience with either either product instead of having to compete directly um, I know when you're pitching to publishers, not that I have much of experience doing that, you definitely have to be willing to change some things because they're, they're like, oh, we can't make that component or we need this at a lower price point. And for us, I guess it's a little less of a concern because we knew that this was the game we wanted to make and we could really decide all that. But also we're a, a more inexperienced company, so maybe those are things we should have thought about more, but the game's going to gonna be released and we're going to have it available. So we must have done something right. Yeah. I think it's fun to like watch, um, watch Chris in the documentary and really like all the designers of the documentary um, make their games because whether, you know, whether you're just starting out like Doug is in the movie, or if you've been around for a number of years, like Matt Leacock or Antoine Bauza, they all have the same challenges in, in designing their games but I think it's kind of like a matter of how they approach those challenges. So like, for example, Antoine Bauza, he has a workshop in France where he has um, a couple of designers work with him and he works full time there. And um, he just like turns out these prototypes uh, like while he, while he's designing his game, developing his game. And so he's uh, overturning like these prototypes a lot quicker than the people who are, um, just doing it when they can, like if they have a full-time job, like Doug, for example, and then he just has like a few hours here and there during the week. But the process is the same. It's just like the timeline is much on a, a much quicker scale for like the the people who are doing it full-time. So I think it's kind of fun to hear like Chris say that those challenges were something that he felt like were unique to him. But it seems like to me that they are are the same challenges for everybody it's just kind of like the approach how how each person addresses it and how much time each person has to do it i would yeah i wouldn't necessarily say that they're they're unique to me but it's more that if you're pitching your game to a company the company is going to be making some of those decisions for you and you have to be able to roll with it whereas if you are part of an owner of a company i mean the other folks in the company are are obviously in you know helping make those decisions with me where we're collaboratively making those decisions but we're in charge of deciding you know what makes this a better product as opposed to an outside publisher so i think i don't think it's uh 
I think everyone's going to face those challenges, but I think they face them in a different way, not just a different time mm-hmm. scale, maybe. Chris, since the Kickstarter finished in December, or was it January 2018 that it wrapped up? I believe it was in December. So once the Kickstarter wrapped up, how much more development did you end up doing after that? And how, uh, how much have you been involved as things have gone to the printer? Uh, we did. Uh, I've still been very much involved uh, even after the Kickstarter came out. But as far as the actual mechanics of the game and the content, there were very little that changed about it after the Kickstarter happened, mostly because we had a previous Kickstarter to take a lot of the feedback from and make those changes beforehand. We did have some wording tweaks and a couple of small balance changes, nothing nothing on a large scale there. But we did have a lot of art and graphic design changes. We had to really map out all the components. And you mentioned earlier in the games as products thing, yeah, we had to change some of the components because of the specifications on how long pack printed and maybe making it a different shape would have been more expensive. Those were just things we didn't think about ahead of time because how would we know? But, uh, well, we probably could have found out. Anyway, uh, we didn't think about those ahead of time, and those were things we had to change. But most of the development of the game at that point was components, art, you know, getting the actual, thinking about making the actual product, making the actual thing, as opposed to developing the mechanics of the game. And did you play a uh, significant role in that as well? All the the physical development, not just the mechanical development? I mean, less than I did in the mechanical development, but I, I did still play a role, yes. I, I had some involvement, especially with art direction and that kind of thing. Uh, I, was, I was more involved with that part. And then some of the, the more business-focused guys and the project management guys in the company, like Gary and John, uh, took care of more of the communication with Longpack and arranging production and all that kind of thing. So Eric, why don't you talk about the, the documentary for a minute and how people can find it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's on Kickstarter right now. I'm not sure when this episode is going to drop, but um, if you hear this episode before March 7th, 2019, it should be on Kickstarter and just browse for the game designers, or you could do www thegamedesignersmovie.com and that will forward you to it. All right. So I guess before we close here, let's do the questions we normally do at the beginning of the episode uh, where we ask what's in the oven. And Eric, I'm going to start with you. Uh, What's in the oven for you guys uh, once this Kickstarter wraps up? All right. So uh, right now, uh, the big project is the Kickstarter. Um, That's in the oven on 500 degrees right now. But uh, once this is done, um, this September, um, I, I'm probably looking to start a new documentary project. I have a couple ideas in the back of my mind, but uh, I'm not exactly sure which one I'll pick yet. So it, it's still uh, still kind of uh, uh, marinating there. Okay. Have you given any thought to more game designs or have you decided to go a different way from here on out? Yeah, I'm probably going to leave uh, game design on the shelf. It was a little too difficult for me or it was something that didn't quite click like 100% with me because like I had like a lot of trouble trying to balance my first game. And I know like that's the whole the whole gist of it. Um, like after making this project, like everybody has trouble, I, I've discovered. But I just kind of like 
going out and exploring the world with my camera and telling stories and stuff like that. So I'll probably keep on doing that. Okay. Chris, what about you? What's uh, what's on your your platter once Battle for Baternia gets delivered here before too long? Well, uh, I'm working on a little uh, drafting game called Natural Selection. It's uh, based on animals. I know, James, you've helped me playtest that a lot. Uh, and we're also working on the Battle for Baternia expansion called Pixelvania. I've got some heroes that we're testing out now. So I hope those are still pretty early in development, but hopefully we'll have that to a point where we can start uh, doing more public testing with it pretty soon. But I'm pretty excited about that, getting to add to the game. And, yeah, that uh, sounds awesome. Bring up some more uh, content there. Very cool. Uh, so if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Chris? You can find me on Twitter at at CC Falconberry. You can find Stone Circle Games at StoneCircleGames.com or on Twitter at at the Stone Circle. We also have a Facebook page for Stone Circle Games. You can just search Stone Circle Games and find it. I'm not sure what the exact URL for that is. Uh, if you want to find Battle for Baternia, we still are taking pre-orders, I believe. Uh, and if not, we'll be taking regular orders very soon. Uh, hopefully it will be available. Oh, it's going to be on Cool Stuff, Inc. Um, it will be featured on their page at some point soon. I don't know the exact dates of that, but keep an eye out for it. Uh, it will be in a number of game stores, and you can also find it at Biternia. That's B-I-T-E-R-N-I-A.com. Okay. And Eric, what about you? Um, the easiest way to connect with me would probably be to just go to Facebook and search for Zoom Out Media, which is my production company. Or you could uh, just look me up, Eric Rail, R-A-Y-L, on Facebook. And uh, if we have enough mutual friends, you know, maybe I'll just uh, friend you there. All right. As always, I am at Apollo Continuum on Twitter. And if you don't remember how to spell that, just go ahead and check the show notes. To discuss this episode, please go to our guild on Board Game Geek. Go to podcast.gdofnc.com and that will redirect you to the guild page. We love your feedback. We also have a group Twitter account that you can follow at GDFNC, which of course stands for Game Designers North Carolina. That'll do it for this episode of the Game Designers North Carolina podcast. Good night.